You're listening to Michelle Redfern and Mel Butcher on Lead to Soar, bringing you the best leadership advice and mentorship from around the world. Learn more at leadtosoar.com. Hey, Michelle, welcome to Lead to Soar. It's great to be with you. Good to be with you too, Mel. We've got a challenging set of topics here today, and I want to offer a trigger warning for our listeners because we are going to be talking about assault, which includes rape in this case and some other things that could be a little upsetting. So please take a moment now if you need to hit pause or put headphones on to do so. So, Michelle, we're here to talk about some semantics, some language around things like sexual assault, sexual harassment at work, sexism at work, and gender bias at work. Why are we having this talk today? We're having this talk, as always, to help leaders and women in workplaces navigate towards much better workplaces for women. And we're having this talk today because there's still enough conversations of which I'm a part of, sadly, and I know you are too, where people are saying, hey, everything's great for women now. And we've solved all those problems or there's nothing to see here. And there still is. And we want to break that down into what there still is to see here, what leaders must pay attention to in their workplaces, pay more attention to in their workplaces and what to do about it. Because this is a really, really important topic. And as you've already said, Mel, it's one that certainly in my geography, where I am in in Australia, has really formed part of a, a national discussion in the last two years. But I don't know that it's permeated well enough into leaders' consciousness and hasn't necessarily shaped the way they do things around here. Right. And I'll echo that because I've had conversations with managers and leaders where I get a pretty clear impression that they think we've solved these problems already. Why are you talking about this? And I really get the idea that what they mean is I don't see men pinching women's bums at work. And I see a woman who's made it to a leadership position above me everything must be fine. So that's kind of what is driving me as as part of this conversation. Let's get a couple of definitions out of the way here. So I think two concepts we want to distinguish are sexual harassment at work, which can include things like physical assault, Versus how gender bias or sexism can play out in the workplace. So let's just get really clear here. The U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, let's just look at how they define sexual harassment discrimination. So they say sexual harassment is a form of sex discrimination that violates Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. So unwelcome sexual advances, requests for sexual favors, and other verbal or physical conduct of a sexual nature constitutes sexual harassment 
when this conduct explicitly or implicitly affects an individual's employment, unreasonably interferes with an individual's work performance, or creates an intimidating, hostile, or offensive work environment. So for me, when I read that, what I really hear or get from it is something that's pretty overt. I think most of us feel like if we witnessed it, we would recognize it. Mm. Yeah, not necessarily, though. (laughs) (laughs) What I get from it, Mel, and I think this is one of the key words, is unreasonable, unreasonably interferes with and unreasonable and unwelcome. And I guess that this is the piece I really want to explore with you because humans have different thresholds and different capacities for what is welcome and unwelcome or what is tolerated and not tolerated. And this is where I think perhaps some of this stuff around sexual assault, sexual harassment and gender bias can get swept under the carpet because it was, you know, things like, oh, well, it was just a joke. My joke might be your unwelcome advance. So I think this is this is where it's really important for leaders to start to understand this terminology and most certainly understand their obligations as employers to create safe workplaces because ultimately this is what it's about here in Australia the definition almost exactly the same obviously we don't have the Civil Rights Act etc however we do have legislation now in Australia that has come out of years of activism and work by the Human Rights Commission here and a bunch of people many of them women to define what the obligations are of employers. And and in Australia, the Respect at Work legislation says that organisations, i.e. employers, must put in place measures to prevent and appropriately respond to sexual harassment in the workplace with a very clear mandate that every person has the right. So their human rights are that they must be safe and free from sexual harassment whilst at work. So both our geographies in the USA and in Australia have very overt, clear mandates around human rights to not experience unwelcome and unreasonable behaviour of a sexual nature. Right. And now's a good time to point out that sexual harassment, sexual assaults that are not limited to women. This can happen to any person of any gender and the perpetrator can be of any gender. Just a few quick stats here that that I want to give that are coming again from the U.S. So one in five women in the United States experience completed or attempted rape during their lifetime. One in four women on some of the major college campuses have been sexually assaulted Nationwide, 81% of women and 43% of men reported experiencing some form of sexual harassment and or assault in their lifetime. And so this is a problem just because we don't witness it firsthand doesn't mean it's not happening. Hmm. 
So when you and I were talking offline, I was talking about the iceberg and what we can see above the line with the iceberg. I've actually just found a graphic on the Respect at Work site, which captures my blurb better than my blurb. So above the line, above the water, what, what we can see where women experience sexual assault, harassment, etc. We have murder, rape, sexual assault, physical and emotional abuse and sexual harassment. And that's what we see. And in many cases, those overt demonstrations of violence against women, because that's what it is, we have largely legislated, put codes of conduct into place. You know, in most workplaces, there's a pretty clear do and do not culture. And if someone were to have a sexual assault that was witnessed in the workplace, we know that there would be punitive consequences. However, it's the below the line or below the surface behaviours and stuff that perpetuate these things happening. And it all starts with disrespect for women, gender inequality, sexist jokes, unequal pay, harmful gender stereotypes, sexist language. So all of these things which we go, oh, well, it was just a joke or, yeah, we're getting towards our pay audit or jokes of a sexual nature or jokes that typically, you know, depict women in a demeaning kind of way and just general disrespect of women. They are all the things that will create the environment where sexual harassment and sexual harm is more likely to prevail. And this is some of the stuff that I get frustrated with, Mel, when I hear, look, no, we've got a really great workplace here and there's absolutely nothing to see here, Michelle. There's nothing going on. And my immediate response is, how do you know? How do you know that that's not going on? Have you inquired? So, and I know I'm kind of leaping forward a bit, but this is the overt stuff. Mm -hmm. You could argue perhaps has been stamped out in workplaces, but the covert and of course, some of the covert behaviour, some of it's malicious and some of it's benign, but creates harm. Where I want to take this, Mel, is really getting leaders to think more critically, what is the organisation I'm really leading here and what mm. must I do about that? I was talking recently with the director of DEI for a really large insurance company, and they mentioned to me that they had started an ERG for victims of domestic violence. And what they were surprised to find, I think, as organizational leaders is how many people showed up to take advantage of that support at all levels. I think we imagine sometimes that that isn't part of our white collar world, but mm -hmm. it definitely still is. So again, just reiterating that just because we're not firsthand witnesses to something doesn't mean that it's not happening. But we want to get to things in the workplace. And so you mentioned things like jokes, and I want to just explore some of those more subtle things that could happen. So jokes, but also things like telling someone that they need to be more ladylike, or let's imagine that we feel comfortable around people who identify as women 
when they fit into our stereotypes around femininity, but we don't feel as comfortable when they're not taking on what we consider to be appropriate for someone who should be feminine and submissive, etc. When we talk down to someone because we have these internal assumptions about their gender, their capability, what else would you say here? I want to bring an intersectional lens to this as well, because if you're a black woman, a woman of color, Latino, Asian, and in my geography, a First Nations or an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander woman, you are more likely to experience this behavior. You are more likely to be assaulted and by a factor of sometimes up to eight, eight times more likely. And of course, we know that black women, Asian women, culturally diverse, culturally and linguistically diverse or racially marginalised women are paid less. And they are also subject to gender stereotypes, which are, are pretty poor. So, for example, Asian women are assumed can be made the butt of jokes around their sexuality and the fact they're sex slaves or they're, you know, sex workers and things like that. Lesbian women, so gay women, there's jokes, which I've got to say, I have heard and been directed at me. Oh, well, you just need one good sexual experience with a man and I'll fix you. You won't be a lesbian anymore. And I'm using very nice language compared to the language that was directed at me and others. You know, so these are the things that women, particularly women who have intersecting layers of identity, will experience. And they're often passed off as jokes. I was just joking. Those things perpetuate those gender stereotypes that then lead to a culture of disrespect that then makes it more okay for harmful behaviour to exist. They're pernicious, right? And, you know, you and I have talked, we've talked about the brilliant jerks in the workplace. We've talked about toxic workplaces. We've talked about these kind of things, how they basically perpetuate a culture of disrespect towards women, a culture of silence as well. So doesn't get called out. I want to add underlying this is a belief, whether it's stated overtly or not, and this is a belief that men and women can hold, which is that boys will be boys. Yeah, exactly. And that's just what men have always done. Okay. So, you know, once upon a time, humans got around the world on their hands and knees and we kind of evolved to become upright homo sapiens we need to evolve yes language that was acceptable 50 years ago is no longer acceptable and that is part of humans evolving and becoming better so things that I experienced in in my workplaces when I started work 973 years ago um, are not acceptable anymore and that includes smoking at your desk <laughs> not that I smoke anymore but the things <laughs> but yes one of the parts of the conversation the national conversation that's been happening here in Australia in the last two to three years has been how many women when the conversation started to, to occur about workplace sexual assault based on a couple of very high profile cases here in Australia. There is not one woman I know who has not had some kind of sexual harassment, discrimination or assault in the workplace. Now, interestingly enough, in my own experience, 
and I'll let you talk about your experience, Mel, because that's yours to tell. It wasn't until much later that I realised the way I was treated as a very young worker was sexual assault because I'm now more educated that the standards in workplaces have lifted but the bottom line is I'm now more educated and I'm knowledgeable about what's acceptable and not acceptable. And I think that's another important part of what we're doing in these conversations that we're having is to highlight what is acceptable and not acceptable for women themselves, for them to say, all right, I've been gaslit this whole time. I've been told it's all in my head or it's just my, I'm taking things too personally. No, this is actually unacceptable behaviour. I think that's a really important part of what we're trying to do as well with these conversations. But over to you. A few things. And I I think that this will help move us forward in the conversation. So I have been assaulted twice in my life. And once was a classmate when I was in college And then the second time was when I was in my first professional job working for the federal government, it was by a superior. And in both cases, I never told anyone. It was not until I started reading these public accounts that women started to put out there during the Me Too movement that I came to realize I myself had this internalized idea around this is just how men behave and you just have to protect yourself instead of recognizing what more of us can see today, which is that behavior is completely unacceptable and the onus is not on me to change men's behavior, right? So that was a big revelation for me. And again, I just want to emphasize, I never told anyone. I I mm. never talked about it to a single person. Later, when I was in school for engineering, I had this encounter at a professional networking social. This is by a professional trade organization that had been put on. And I, I went to their events a lot to build up my network. And I encountered this person that that said something so awful. He and I were talking. He's like director level in a consulting company. And he looks at me squarely in the eyes and he says, hey, do you think you can help me recruit a woman with big tits? Do you see that guy over there? I mean, he is just not going to land the prospects, the sales calls that we need to get. And do you know anyone in your engineering department like that? Jeez. (laughs) I was completely taken aback. And in that moment, I was like, well, clearly I'm not the one to help you with that. So, you know, I'll have a think on it. And I ended up recounting this story. So, Listeners, for more context, this would have happened around like 2013 or 2014, okay? So I recounted this when I was being interviewed on another show. I thought for sure they would cut it out because it was for a major trade organization, and they didn't. They left it in. And I'll try to repeat the same thing here, which is that usually when I've told this story to men, and I was being interviewed by a man at that time, I get this like shock, like so Mm. surprised that this happened. And I think the thing is that most women would not be shocked. And this is something really important for male leaders 
to understand. So help us take this conversation forward from here, Michelle, because I think one of the things that we could hear right now, if we had a male leader in the room that is working for, you know, an upstanding company, right? They might look at you and I and say, well, I've never seen that happen, or I've never heard of something like this reported. So we must be doing pretty good, but what else do I need to know or do? So I'm sorry that that happened to you, Mel, in all of the experiences you've had. This is the first thing that I want leaders to do is to listen when a woman trusts you enough to say, I have had this experience. Please don't go straight into solving mode. Say, I'm really sorry that happened to you. What can I do to support you? So, you know, this is workplace safety 101. Make safe immediately. Remove the hazard, make safe. So that's number one. I'm going to tell a story about a CEO who behaved beautifully when I was subject to quite a similar experience. It was in the football environment. I was at a function and I was a board director of this organisation and was in charge of and was very overtly building a women's program. And of course, it was the rise of women's football here in Australia. And we just had a panel of elite women footballers talking. And one of the men in this particular group said to me, women don't belong in this game. And I just said, dude, I reckon you're talking to the wrong person here, wrong audience, read the room. And he just said, no, you sit here and listen to me. You listen to me, what I've got to say to you. Women don't belong on the ground. They belong in the kitchen. You don't belong here, blah, blah, blah. And was quite violent in his language. Now, this is literally only a handful of years ago. So similar to you, but I was gobsmacked and just went, you know what, I'm going to walk away here. The CEO of the organisation, a man, immediately intervened. Number one, said to the guy, get outside, cool your jets. Your behaviour is unacceptable. Said to me, are you okay? No, I'm not. I'm going to go home. Can I take you home? Blah, blah, blah. No, no, whatever. And I was, I was very, very upset. But the immediate action that he took was to sanction that member and request a formal apology from that member and the associated people in the group to me and to the women of the club. Now, that was good action. That was ally action, but it was also leadership action because we were building an environment, a workplace where women were not just tolerated, but we were actively being invited in to be a part of the organisation. We weren't just there for doing the, the canteen and things like that. So that leadership action was really profound. As a result of that, though, the next step that this leader took was to invite me to share some of my experiences and then to investigate what else might be going on in the organisation. So we then did a diagnostic. What's really going on for women and particularly for our women's playing group who were new to the organisation and more likely to experience perhaps some of the either overt or covert sexism. So for leaders, this is the action Number one, listen to her and believe her. If she's had the courage to report, and let's one in 10 report. So there are nine instances of what Mel's experienced and what I've experienced that you will never know about because women will not report because they do not believe they will be listened to, believed, and action will be taken. And that is institutionalized sexism. 
So the first is to listen, make safe, make sure she's okay. And the second is to not assume that this was a one-off incident. Is this part of the culture of my organisation? Are women systematically sexually discriminated against, harassed, assaulted? I must go and find out. So we've got to start as leaders really stopping to regularly check in with women in our organisation. What is their lived experience? What must I do more of or less of as a leader of this organisation to make sure that they are safe and respected and thriving in this workplace? So not just wait. Now, in Australia, there is more of it, there is even more of an emphasis on doing that now because legislation says employers now have a positive duty to make sure their workplaces are free from sexual harassment, discrimination, and assault. Which means that in the past, a person who was sexually assaulted, and I'm not the legal person here, so apologies, legal eagles, if you're going, no, you buggered that up, Michelle. But basically, I have to prove what it is that I've done. And I have to prove that this has happened. The onus is now on the employer to prove that they've created, proactively created a workplace where this cannot happen or that it is dealt with appropriately and expediently. So leaders, you can't assume you know what's going on out there because I guarantee you, unless you inquire regularly, you will not know and it will not be reported to you for a whole range of reasons. Yes, absolutely. Being proactive and not waiting for an extremely negative incident to spur conversations and regular check-ins with women. You know, I want to build on that too, Mel, because I recently had an experience, and again, no names, no pack drill, a very, very senior executive of a listed organisation in Australia who said something when I was working with this organisation to say, what's the strategy build going to be around diversity, equity and inclusion, and in particular, around gender equality. And this person said, look, I've got a woman in my team, and actually she's gay and she's really happy. So there's nothing to see here. There's nothing to see in this organisation. I had to assemble my face into something which was less WTF and more, hmm, that's interesting, tell me more. But it was horrifying because I thought, there it is. There's nothing to see here because I've had one conversation with one woman from a marginalised or underrepresented group. And because she said to me, everything's okay, everything's okay. One woman out of 10,000 people. And you kind of go, dude, read the tea leaves. You would have to have been under a rock for the last 10 years not to have heard about Me Too, Time's Up, Respect at Work, and the, the many high-profile cases of women experiencing very, very bad behaviour with very poor outcomes in the workplace. And they're just the ones that we know about. This is the genesis of Me Too, and I, I want to be really clear about the Me Too around sexual assault. You know, people saying, I've had this experience, and a woman would go, yeah, Me Too. Hashtag Me Too is about most of us. Most of us have had some kind of unwelcome and unreasonable behavior directed to us of a sexist nature. Yeah. And I just want to deviate here for just a minute and give credit here to the Black woman who originally 
put this idea out there of me to Tarana Burke because she was the creator of this concept and it didn't really get the attention it did not or the credit that she deserved early on and like I didn't learn about this me too idea until it became that hashtag that was so prevalent when I saw Alyssa Milano's starting that hashtag that was when I became aware of it too and then of course you know again we explore concepts and what have you in Tarana Burke's work with young black women who of course are more likely to experience this behaviour. So thanks for for crediting Tarana Burke there, Mel. So the call to action here for leaders is you must understand the workplace that you are really leading. And if you don't know, you've got to go find out. So I want to call some attention to some of the things that are less overt. I was reading on this idea of ambivalent sexism and a few of the things that they identified that they put under this umbrella of ambivalent sexism, they look and sound like glorifying traditionally feminine behavior and demonizing unladylike behavior, differentiating between good women and bad women based on things like how they show up, how they communicate, how they dress. And then again, this happens, I think, most often unconsciously hiring someone because they're attractive. Yeah. Appearance-based sexism is still absolutely prevalent in all of us. (laughs) And, you know, it can be as simple as, oh, you'd be so much prettier if you smiled more. And I joke to people that I've got a great resting bitch face because when I'm concentrating, I frown. People go, oh, my, you always look angry, Michelle. You're so angry. I go, I'm not angry. I'm just concentrating, you know. But my first retort now is, would you say that to a man? Would you? No, you wouldn't. Gee, you'd be more attractive if you smiled more. Well, okay. You'd be more attractive if you kept your mouth shut. F right off. And they are perpetuated by all genders. And... You know, the ladylike, unladylike, this is where we, we start to get into that whole double bind. You know, we want you to show up and be really assertive and drive the business forward, Mel, but mm, we want you to look nice and we want you to behave nicely and we don't want you to be too shouty or aggressive or anything like that. Well, hang on a minute. What do you want me to do Yeah, I'm getting so many mixed messages here. I remember, you know, just a few years ago, PwC, who just seemed to lurch from disaster to disaster at the moment, PwC were in the firing line in their UK office because their receptionists had to wear high heels and short skirts. And one of their receptionists turned up without her high heels and was sent home and allowed to come back to work. And of course, that rightly gathered the disdain that it deserved and it rightly prompted a review of those kind of draconian and sexist approaches. But And I just say, would a man be subject to this kind of scrutiny or feedback? Oh, my God, absolutely. And I won't name names, but there's a certain engineering firm in the United States that was requiring women to wear pantyhose to work until just a couple of years ago. So let me tell you, even though you redacted that rule, you've got problems. Oh, my God. Yeah. For the women listening, we see you, we hear you and we believe you. 
And we also acknowledge and recognize that not every woman can step up and report what has happened to her. And we're really sorry about that. And that's what this podcast is about. This episode is about so that we can help leaders make it a safe place for you to step up and report behavior. But we know that that's a really difficult thing. And it's actually not your job. It's not women's job to fix the behavior of the people who are discriminating against them. Whose job it is, is the leaders of the organization to say, and I've said it a number of times in this episode, what is the organization that I'm really leading here? Can I hand on heart confidently say that a woman of any identity or intersecting identities will feel safe, will feel respected and will be able to thrive in my workplace. Can I say that there, she will not be subject to any kind of sexist behaviour, whether it's overt or covert? Can I hand on heart say that that behaviour will not happen? Or, because we can't control humans, of course, or we have appropriate mechanisms in place to take action immediately when that is reported. For me, that's the question, leaders. Can you say that and do that? And if not, why not? Right. And I know we've been talking about some heavy things here. So I want to give an example of something more covert that is harmful to women. And I'd love to hear, Michelle, if you've got another example. An example of some kind of covert sexism or gender bias playing out in the workplace that you can't immediately see a negative to looks like this. So this was actually pointed out to me by a male colleague. He realized that managers were assuming that the young women engineers in the group would prefer to stay in the office. And so that meant assigning them things that were doing spreadsheets, making visuals, running models on the computer, etc. And they assigned the young male engineers on the team to go out and do construction oversight. So after the team had developed the design for whatever was going to be implemented, the young male engineers got to go out and oversee the design being actually constructed. So it seems benign, but what happens when we play this out over the long haul of, let's say, a man and a woman, both of their careers, is that even when that first round of opportunity to advance comes up, who do you think is going to get the promotion fastest? Spoiler alert, it's going to be the person that managers, other engineers, consider to be the one that has, quote, real world experience. It's going to be the person who got to go out on the job site. So this is like a reiteration of what we've talked about, where even in those early years of advancement opportunity, men are promoted at a faster rate than women. And it's not because women don't want it. It's because they've been set up to fail. Absolutely. You know, this is a build on our episode around office housework. Now, you know, there are very overt examples of office housework. Take the minutes, organise the lunch, blah, blah, blah. But there are also the covert elements. Mel, would you 
organised the new reward and recognition scheme. And it would be really good if you could organise the client entertainment. But you know what? When there's a golf day for clients and suppliers, yeah, we're not going to get you to come along because we know that women don't play golf. Well, actually, women do play golf. But second, actually, could we perhaps think about something a little more inclusive than golf? Because not everyone can play of all genders. It's expensive. (laughs) So it actually precludes a lot of people from playing. And perhaps we could think about something a little more inclusive where she can get exposed to decision makers and decision making and do business. You know, these are all intertwined matters that we talk about. So let's have the team debrief at 5.30 in the pub in the local bar. Great. Okay, so those of us with caring responsibilities, whether they're of little humans, older humans, we are precluded from the places where business gets done. And of course, because of gender stereotypes and how rigid they are and how they still prevail, guess who's going to go and do the school pickup or the after soccer pickup or the the nursing home visit before dinner time? It's more likely to be a woman. Therefore, she is going to be excluded from the decision-making and decision-maker environment, which is going to help propel her, her career forward. So, Leaders, you know, sexism comes in in all sorts of different ways. And I want you to think really, really hard about, am I giving, I'm going to use binary language, am I giving men and women in my organisation equal opportunity to learn the business of the business, to learn from decision makers and about decision making, and to know how to grow the business and advance their career with our business. Because if it's not with your business, because if she's not getting it, she's going to go somewhere else. So this is what we need you to do, leaders. Is this organisation and all the leaders in my organisation, are we really clear about institutionalised sexism, how it prevails? And yes, there is something to see here. I can guarantee you, folks, there is something to see. Mm. And the only way you're going to know about that is by getting really curious, respectfully curious, and starting to interrogate all of your systems, your processes, and the behaviours of the organisation to say, have I got a workplace where women are safe, respected, and can thrive? Excellent. Ask that question every single day. I think that's a good place for us to wrap. Thank you for putting a bow on what they need to recognise and what steps to take next. And look, this is a really big, hairy, distressing subject for a lot of people and for a lot of women. So thanks, Mel, for for your shares as well. And thank you for having the courage to relive some things that were not great for you and sharing that so that we can all be better and we can all together close that global leadership gender gap, which, of course, that gap prevails because of sexism. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Lead to Soar. We sincerely appreciate your honest, positive reviews. You can leave questions at leadtosoar.com for Michelle and Mel to answer on future episodes. Until next time, we hope you'll use what you've learned here and lead to soar.